welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. And I am thrilled today that we are joined once again by Kathleen Vandewill. Kathleen, welcome. Happy holidays, Pat. So happy to be with you again. <laughs> yes, likewise. We do have a treat in store. Today's opera is Amal and the Night Visitors by Giancarlo Menotti. And it's a, it's a one-act opera that was commissioned specifically for television, 1951. Yeah, one of the one of the first to ever be commissioned for television and something I was not familiar with at all coming into it. I know you had seen it as a as a child. Isn't that right, Pat? I had definitely seen this as a child on television. I had seen it because it it became a tradition back when there weren't as many TV channels and options for watching. And this was something that that families would gather and watch. I also did see it one time as a concert opera with the New York Philharmonic and it's a show that gets played a lot during the holiday season and not always by professional orchestras. Yes, well, it's got all of the elements, I think, that you would think of for the Christmas season. The healing of a lame child, the nativity story, forgiveness, people who are from faraway lands bringing gifts. I think there's, there's a lot here that I can't wait to dig into. It's fun and it's very tuneful. I think people will enjoy this music. Interestingly, that's one of the things in a way that Minotti was criticized for by the music critics, that he was a little old fashioned that way. He was lyrical. And at one, one of the interviews I read by him, he's like, well, why are they criticizing me for having sweet and beautiful music? Why is that a bad thing? So. <laughs> I think this is something that a lot of artists probably have the same critique all the time of their critics. How, how are you mad at me for the fact that people like this? Yeah, but it's interesting. Minotti is not as familiar a name as some of our other opera composers, even though he's somebody who composed 25 operas and a number of other pieces of music, orchestral works and cantatas, ballets, chamber music. He's He was a very, very prolific composer. He lived to be 95 years old. Wow, that is um, that is a ripe old age. Congratulations to him. <laughs> Yeah, and he's continued working, from what I can tell. The height of his popularity and output in composing was really the 40s, 50s, into the 60s. But he continues working all along with lots of other different projects that we're not going to discuss right now. But I do want to let everyone know this is a one-act opera, and we're going to mostly focus on Amal and the Night Visitors during this first half of Opera for Everyone. And then in the second half, we're going to dig into to many of these connected ideas to the opera, talk a little bit more about Minotti and his career, Minotti and his personal and professional relationship with Samuel Barber. We're going to talk about the Christmas special as a genre. I'm going to talk about the Three Kings because they feature prominently in this opera and there's a lot to be said. And maybe we might even hear a little bit of Christmas-related music that includes the Three Kings. So there's plenty to come up, and we might even have another Opera for Everyone favorite join us to discuss all of that. So, Ooh, who could it be? <laughs> Let's see. Biblical story. Hmm. What, what guest would work really well for that? Yeah, I think we're going to have Grant pop on by for the second <laughs> half. And we're going to focus, you and I, on the opera itself, Amal and the Night Visitors. I will mention, however, that at the time of his death in 2007, the chief music critic for the New York Times wrote in the opening portion of the obituary, Minotti had a talent for making opera comprehensible and enjoyable for people 
who had previously shunned it. Wow, that could be the opera for everyone um, motto, I think. Yeah, so he's our guy, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He was born and grew up in Italy, but came to America at age 17 and oftentimes just simply referred to himself as an American composer. But he was, in fact, very international, but did most of his work in the United States and in English. And he wrote the librettos for his own operas, Amal and the Night Visitors included. And he also liked to direct his own works and other people's works for that matter. (laughs) He was quite a sought after stage director because he was very good directing and working the music into the story that was being presented on stage. So shall we start with Amal and the Night Visitors? Let's get into it. Well, we open with a lovely prelude. We heard a little bit of that right there in the beginning. And it's a very simple scene. And we we see a, a boy sitting down playing on a little flute sort of instrument. Yes, this is Amal. He is a young boy living near Bethlehem in the first century, just right around the, the time of the birth of Christ. And he walks with a crutch. That is a, a key part of his character. Yeah, and we don't see that initially because he's sitting down and playing. It's only when his mother calls him to come inside mm-hmm. that we notice one of his legs is not working and he requires the crutch to get around. Yeah, and this, I mean, obviously to me, it was very reminiscent of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol where you have one of the sort of side characters be a child that also has to walk with a crutch. Both, I, I think both representing the same idea here, which is part of what's important about the nativity story and Mm. Christian ethics is caring for for those who are less fortunate, caring for the widowed, the orphaned, the disabled, etc. Well, and speaking of the widowed, after we hear him play his flute a little bit, the first words we hear are his mother calling Amal, Amal, it's time to come inside. It's nighttime. It's getting cold. And he's like, yeah, I mean, it's just a mother and a kid. Yeah, yeah, Mom, I'm coming, I'm coming. Of course he doesn't. He keeps on playing, like enjoying what he's doing. He's like, Mom, don't worry, I'm good, I'm good. She's like, (laughs) come in now. And let's just hear a little bit of the music that establishes this loving yet mother-son relationship between these two characters. Yes, yes. 
That was Amal and his mother, the mother whose name in this opera is simply the mother, because <laughs> that's her role. When he finally does come inside, she wants to know why wouldn't you come in? What was keeping you out there? And he he's a dreamer, I would say. He's somebody who, who loves stories. He, he still has childlike wonder, despite probably living in, in difficult circumstances. And one of the things he's trying to tell her is he says, there's this big star above the house and I've been looking at it and you got to go look at it. It's this huge star. And, and she kind of, I think, thinks he's sort of um, telling another tale, this dreamer child, but he is insistent that she go out and, and look at this star, which if you're familiar with the nativity story, is the star put in the sky to indicate where the birth of Jesus has taken place. Right. He says, Mother, the sky has never looked this way. It's it's amazing. The star is as large as a window and it has a tail and it's moving across the sky like a chariot on fire. And you can almost guess what the mother's response is going to be to all of this. Didn't you promise to stop lying to me? Stop telling <laughs> stories? Oh, he's like the little boy who, who cried wolf, but with fantastical celestial events. Yes. <laughs> but I, I love the way this this starts and, and you see this in the nativity story too, is we're seeing this incredible world changing event, but we're seeing it through the eyes of the everyday people, the, yeah. the poor, the the widowed. You see that in the nativity story with shepherds watching their flocks see the, the star. And Amal being this child who we'll find out too used to be a shepherd mm. is a fitting guide to the story for us. Yes. But the mother, she doesn't just accuse him of telling tales. She's like, listen, you're the same person who told me you saw a leopard with a woman's head and a tree branch that shrieked and bled and a fish as big as a boat. And she goes on and on to recount some of his previous stories. So, I mean, she's not just being difficult with him. She's she's got her evidence piled up there like you do tell stories, young man. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that he has indeed told her some, some whoppers in his day. <laughs> Yeah, but not this time, mom, not this time. And then the mother, it, this you get, again, you get a sense of this relationship where they're not just at each other, but the mother just in exasperation, she's like, oh, the hunger, it's gone to your head. Uh, what's a poor widow to do? So you really, she lets you in a little bit on what their life is like. Things are so difficult. She doesn't have enough to feed her child. Mm -hmm. She's had to sell everything that they've owned. There's nothing left for us but to become beggars. Mm. And when she drops this on him, he has an interesting response. Amal's response to that is to really comfort and lighten the mood with his mother. He says, oh, if we have to become beggars, don't cry. We'll be great beggars. We'll, yeah. we'll dress up in, in these costumes. I'll be a clown. You'll be a gypsy. Everybody will love us and give us money. And he's still seeing this very much through the eyes of childhood. And through stories, once again, you see like Amal's really... He's a child that experiences things through stories first and yeah. sort of imagines that the experience that he goes through will mirror that of what he's heard. But his mother has has seen more of the reality of the hard reality of the world they live in. Indeed. Um, and to be a beggar is one of the worst things you could sink to, of course, in, in their world, in their time. Yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit of Amal's cheerful reply.
Well, that was a mall from A Mall in the Night Visitors by Giancarlo Menotti. Kathleen, isn't it fun to get to hear an opera in English once in a while? <laughs> it is almost a novel experience. I, I don't know if you and I have ever done an English language opera together, have we? Not you and I, no. I don't no, think we so, haven't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, but it's lovely. It's quite lovely. And to know that it was written in English by this fellow who considered himself an American composer, but he's got Italian roots where he grew up and did train in Milan for a short while before he came to the United States. And it's fun to also think of this as being a Christmas tradition for a period of the middle 20th century, which is exactly what it was. It premiered on Christmas Eve, this commissioned opera by NBC premiered on Christmas Eve, 1951. In fact, before the opera was presented, Giancarlo Minotti himself introduced it on television, standing there in front of Oh, we didn't mention this yet. In front of this, uh, a replica of this painting by Hieronymus Bosch. Mm -hmm. And this painting of Hieronymus Bosch, the Adoration of the Magi, played an important role in the creation of this story, of this opera. Yes, he was trying to find an idea for this opera. He'd been commissioned and he had a deadline, but he said he didn't have any ideas and he was sort of blocked. And he was in the Metropolitan Museum, which is a great place for inspiration, of course. Yeah. And he saw this painting by Hieronymus Bosch. It's called The Adoration of the Kings. And it depicts the story of the birth of Christ and the three magi coming to this stable where, where Christ is laid in a manger. And he just sort of had this inspiration and he started to hear this song that we'll hear very soon. And he sort of saw it as almost a, a mystical experience where it kind of came to him as he was watching this painting. Yeah, it's interesting. In the introduction, you, by the way, you can find this on YouTube, the broadcast, uh, a recording of the broadcast from 1951, where Giancarlo Minotti himself is standing there in glorious black and white, and he is introducing this show to us. And he explains that that moment of being in a gloomy mood, as he says, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and seeing this painting. And he's recalling his childhood in Italy, where the three kings played a really important role. It's this charming thing, he says. He says, we didn't have Santa Claus. I suppose, mm -hmm. he says, that Santa Claus was too busy with the American children. We had three kings bringing <laughs> us our presents, he says. Uh -huh. And so it kind of clicked for him the way he tells the story when he sees this painting of the three kings. It, he clicks and says, oh, they were important in my childhood. That's bringing me back to the memories of the, the very happy Christmases I had as a child. Mm -hmm. And here are these three kings who, in the story, bring gifts to the Christ child. But in this moment, they're bringing me a gift. They're bringing me an inspiration for this opera. And then now this is my gift to you, which is a really just a sweet way for him to introduce this work to the American public. Yes, it's, it's hard to remember that there's a connection really between what we think of as Santa Claus brings the gifts. But a big part of that tradition does originate in the three kings bringing gifts to the Christ child. It's part of why we give gifts at Christmas and why there's even a gift thing attached to it besides rampant capitalism in yeah. America. But yeah, Epiphany is something I think in America we often don't do that much to celebrate these days unless you're attached to a religious tradition that does. But yeah, that that is the origin. Yeah, right. Epiphany being the date that the three kings arrive mm -hmm. and they follow the star to find the child, to find mm -hmm. the babe. 
Well, shall we hear the three kings arriving? This happens in the story of the opera. This happens while the mother and Amal have said goodnight to each other and they're going to go to sleep for the night. And outside, the three kings approach. This is Opera for Everyone, and we're talking about Amal and the Night Visitors. And the visitors have just showed up. So you just heard the song of the three kings. And in our story, the kings have been approaching, and they stop at this cottage, this house that Amal and his mother live in. And they knock at the door because they're they're looking for some rest on their journey. And Amal, of course, being the the character most attuned to fabulous and unexpected things happening, opens the door and sees incredibly beautifully dressed man who is dressed like a king and says to his mother, you have to go see this guy. This is amazing. But of course, we've established that Amal has a habit of telling fabulous stories to his mother that are not Mm -hmm. always true. And so, of course, she, she doesn't believe him. No, and when he goes back to the door a second time and returns, having slammed the door in the face each time. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. He's like, you're not going to believe me. There wasn't one king. I was wrong. I lied. (laughs) There are two kings. Yes. And and you can see where this is heading. Right. And eventually three kings. Yes, exactly. The whole thing to me is a little reminiscent of another biblical story from the Old Testament, which is Sarah and Abraham welcoming the angels into their house and how... There's this idea that that you don't know who the stranger you're welcoming into your house could be. It could be an angel in disguise. It could mm-hmm. be the, the Christ in disguise, you know, et cetera. Um, and so there's a bit of that here where the mother is very skeptical and the child is very open to this idea of welcoming something something strange and fabulous into their house. Eventually, though, <laughs> she she does go to the door to look for herself and she is, of course, stunned. Completely speechless, stunned. The the kings are there and the mother becomes reverent, mm-hmm. subservient, inviting them in when they say, please, we need a place to spend the night. Could we possibly come under your roof? Yes. She welcomes them in and listens to them, but she makes it clear what she can offer them because yeah. they are clearly so much higher in status. And the idea that they would choose to stop at this, you know, this very poor establishment. She says, well, don't, you know, don't expect too much. All I can offer you is some some cold straw 
yeah. <laughs> and a and a fireplace with no fire in it. But once again, this is reminiscent of this other part of the nativity story where Mary and Joseph are looking for a place to stay the night while Mary has the Christ child. The only thing that they can find is a, is an inn and a stable outside. No the room inn. in the inn, right? Right. <laughs> So it's a, it's sort of, once again, a parallel with that story that's going on. Yeah. And they say, that's fine. Thank you so much. We appreciate your hospitality. We won't stay long because we can't lose sight of our star. Mm-hmm. And suddenly she thinks, wait, Ooh. star? What star? <laughs> this is Turns all out Amal wasn't making up a story. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she'll believe him more in the future. <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> or maybe we won't see, but... <laughs> we can only stay a little not sight of our star. Your star? What did I tell you? Shh. We still have a long way to go. I shall be right back. And Amal, don't be a nuisance. No, mother. listening to Amal and the Night Visitors by Giancarlo Manotti and the kings have arrived. They are in the poor home of the mother and Amal. The kings seem grateful to be there, although they maintain a great sense of, of dignity as they enter. And the mother is a little flustered. She's like, I don't even have anything wood to burn in the fireplace to warm this house up. I'm going to go find some wood. I'm going to go out. Amal, you stay here with our guests. Don't be a nuisance. Well, <laughs> well, that's not really in his repertoire. A mall's going to be a mall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This whole thing really makes you wonder about, um, I think, you know, if you could become an innkeeper at this time in, in history, you'd probably have a very lucrative profession because it seems like there were never enough inns. No, it was, was a problem. Was a problem. Well, of course, a mall is there with these three magnificently dressed men and, they, and in their page and a mall starts doing what he's going to do, which is whatever's on the top of his mind, he's going to start asking them questions. He asked the one, do you have regal blood? Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) But can I see your regal blood? Well, it's just like yours. Well, what's the point then? No point. And it's, it's an adorable little exchange between, that's with Balthazar, one of the kings. And then he says, well, what about you? What do you do? And this is when we find out that Amal used to be a shepherd mm-hmm. and he had a flock of sheep. Yeah. And, and his identity is really been taken from him in that sense that he was a shepherd. He had a profession, but they have they have sunk so low that they have had to sell the thing that they made their livelihood on, which is the sheep. So they really are in the direst of, of straits. But he doesn't really talk about it almost like, oh, it's this horrible thing that's befallen us. He's just very matter of fact about it. Yeah. And says, oh, you know, we had to sell a sheep, but we're going to go begging. And almost as if it's this new profession they're going to embark upon. Yeah, won't it be fun, he says. I was a shepherd. I had a flock of sheep. But my mother sold them, sold them. Now there are no sheep.
It has its points. Well, after telling them a little bit about himself, Amal continues with his questions. And now he comes to Kaspar, one of the kings. And it's really charming in the introduction that Minotti gave to that original broadcast. He explains how he and his brother, he was one of eight children, by the way, the sixth of eight children, but he speaks specifically about one of his brothers and how they would wait up trying to remain awake for the visit of the three kings. And they never managed to see them because they always came right after the two boys fell asleep, but they always heard them. And so it's, mm. a, it's an auditory memory for oh, him. I yeah. I mean, it was re- it's really a very charming introduction. And, and it gets right to a lot of, I think, the childlike charm that you can attach mm-hmm. to this show. The King Casper is hard of hearing in Amal and the Night Visitors. And he explains that, yeah, my, my favorite was always Melchior, that king, because I thought his long beard was magnificent. But Caspar was my brother's because he found him to be kind of funny, maybe a little mm-hmm. crazy. <laughs> and he said he must have been hard of hearing. Why must he have been hard of hearing? Well, that's because my brother would ask for things that he wouldn't receive. So he must <laughs> not have been able to hear. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> So that plays out in this, that every time Amal speaks to Kaspar, he, he's like, eh, eh? Mm-hmm. And, and he has to repeat it a little bit louder. And he specifically asks Kaspar about his little animal that he's carrying in a cage. And he says, does it talk? Maybe it's a parrot. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And Kaspar you know, just looks at him and goes, how would I know if he talks? <laughs> <laughs> does he bite? And Kaspar holds up his finger, with, which has a little bandaging on it. And then Caspar shows him what he really cares about, and it's his box. Yes. And this, of course, is the box that has candy in it, too. <laughs> so well, it's perfect yeah. for a child. Yeah, this is, this is quite a box. It's got these magical stones in it. Yeah, it's got beads. It's got licorice, I think, is, is what, yeah. it, what it has in it. Yeah, and Amal comes up with probably the first candy he's ever really had. So he gets to taste that. Which I, I love the idea of Caspar bringing that to the Christ child. Yeah. But he, along for the journey, he, he had to make sure he brought some candy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, magical stones that have any, any talks about all the magical powers that these various stones have in his box. But then there's the beads because he just likes playing with them. And then there's the licorice because <laughs> licorice. It's quite charming. And it's, it's the last exchange that Amal's going to have alone with the kings before his mother returns. This is my box. This is my box. I never travel without my box. In the first row, I keep my magic stones. One carnelian against all evil and envy. One moonstone to make you sleep. One red coral to heal your wounds. One lapis lazuli against quartan fever. One small jasper to help you find water. One small topaz to soothe your eyes. One red ruby to protect you from lightning. This is my box. This is my box. I never travel without my box. When Amal's mother returns home, she can see that he is the center of attention of everyone else in the house. And of course, her first response is, I told you not to be a nuisance, Amal. 
And I love his response. Yeah, he says, well, they kept asking me questions. (laughs) Of course, that's not what's been happening. (laughs) A little bit of a shading of twisting of the truth. but Maybe one question that was posed to him and the rest was the other way around. And then not to keep referencing other things in the Bible, but to me, this really reminds me of the story of the young Jesus when he gets left behind by his parents. Yes. And he's found sitting in the temple questioning and talking to all of these scholars as if he's an adult. Um, There's the same kind of like precocity, I think, um, in in this depiction of a mall of of a a precocious child, basically. Who isn't afraid to just speak frankly with with some kings he encountered? Yeah, he's not intimidated by the the status difference, and he's like, "When am I going to get a chance to talk to people like this? I have lots of questions. They are carrying things that I'm curious about." But it's interesting. They kept asking me questions. I think is adorable. Okay. It's just it's so it's so human and so real in mm-hmm. the interaction between the son and the mother. Yeah, I think in this show, I I really I really like that. Yeah, I do too. And I, I like that the kings are given personalities to you that are distinct. Mm-hmm. That's not really something I think you get in a lot of depictions of them. They're just sort of all three and they each bring a separate gift. But other than that, I, I couldn't tell you anything really specific about them. But he takes the time to really give them personalities here. Oh, yeah. I would have been lovely to have him spend more time with the kings. I'm sure mm-hmm. he would have gotten more out of them. <laughs> do a prequel about each one. <laughs> she... She's like, okay, I've I've brought back some firewood, but Amal, you we don't have anything to eat to offer our guests. You need to go go talk to the other shepherds in the village. Please mm-hmm. have them come here, come to our home to greet the visitors and bring something that we can share with them. And he dutifully obeys, leaving the mother alone mm-hmm. with the visitors. And she notices the pile of gifts that they have brought in that the page has set out in front of them mm-hmm. and says, uh, these are beautiful. She doesn't ask, but she remarks on them. And the kings say, oh, yes, these are gifts for the child. The child? What child, she wonders. Yeah, this is the first time that she's hearing more about how all these things connect. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's remarkably, it it shows her good character that when she lets them into the house, at first, she doesn't seem to be expecting anything from them. And also there's no like, oh, you're going to see Jesus. And so I must let you in. It's just like, you're a weary traveler come into my house. But now she's starting to put it all together. Yeah. That's part of what people did. You know, if you were traveling, you did have to ask for people to accommodate you and hopefully you could be of some help. But she did just offer hospitality when it was requested of her to the extent that she was able to provide it. But she wants to know more about this child. And honestly, this is one of my favorite pieces in this entire opera, where they sing about this child that they're anticipating meeting. We know it's the Christ child. And she echoes what they're saying, and she relates it to her own son, who is a child who has mm-hmm. a lot of qualities that she, she loves.
It's almost heartbreaking how she aches for her own son and wants better for him. Mm-hmm. And, and how reverent the three kings are in their devotion for finding this, this child, this special child who's, who's being born with the stars leading them to. But then we have the shepherds arriving. And this is a lovely choral piece of all the, the shepherds in the village coming they're greeting each other. They're finding a chance to be together mm-hmm. and also to greet the visitors who have stopped at Amal's home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the hospitality continues to be this big, important theme here that it's not just about housing these people who've come, but really giving everything you have to give. Let's bring all the neighbors together, whatever entertainment they can provide, whatever small amounts of food they can provide. What they're giving is is a lot for people who are poor, but to them, it's the act of offering it is what makes it special. Almost like the the story of the widow's might, where the widow, uh, and this is another Old Testament story, but a very rich man gives a certain percentage of his money yeah. to charity. It's like, okay, well, that's that's nice of him, but it doesn't really, he doesn't feel it. But the widow gives her last coin. Jesus tells that story that that is much more special in the eyes of God. These people, too, they're giving everything they have to entertain and, and feed and house these visitors. It's poignant because you know that the mother, before the guests arrived, you know that the mother and the son have gone to bed mm-hmm. hungry. Yeah. Well, let's hear the shepherds. Neighbors have come in and they've brought what they have to offer to the kings, meager though it may be. And the mother says, oh, please don't be afraid. Perhaps you could dance for them. And after a little bit of shyness and hesitation, we get a lovely dance amongst some of the youth of the village. And we have another chance to hear some of Minotti's music that doesn't include the singing. Minotti was so good at writing music for singers, but he also composed plenty of other music as well. And you get a sense of that all to a purpose, all to the story here. So let's hear a little bit of this dance music. Thank you. 
dance of the shepherds. And there's been incredible festivities and the shepherds are done with their dance and they have greatly pleased the three kings who express how grateful they are at this entertainment and, and hospitality. And the shepherds and all of the neighbors, they wish them good night and all go back to their own homes after having played this, this beautiful role in welcoming the stranger. Mm. And this whole time, of course, Amal has been entertaining himself and enjoying himself yes. <laughs> um, greatly, I'm sure. This is not an everyday thing for him. And he uses this time to sneak over to one of the kings, Kaspar. The guy with the box. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's clearly been thinking about what he saw in Kaspar's box mm. and these beads and, and magical stones. And he he says very, very quietly, he says, is there something in there that could cure me, that could heal me? I mean, he's talking about this leg that we've discussed before, which also probably inhibited his ability to be a, a successful shepherd and to yeah. be the man of the house. And we don't know exactly how old he is, but he seems to be maybe, I don't know, I see him as like 11 or 12, maybe. Yeah. 10 or 11 was my guess. So Right. So sort of in a place where he is not yet ready to be the man of the house, but he feels like he wants to be. Yeah, it's interesting. Minotti specifies in presenting this, he really wants it to be played by a boy soprano, mm -hmm. this role, uh, not by uh, a young woman who's playing a boy. Not, not make it a trouser role, as does happen often in an opera. And it, it happens with this show as well. But, but it is Minotti's preference that it be played by a boy. And most of these presentations on YouTube will, will in fact, be that way if you go and look for them. And I recommend you all do. All right. So back to the, back to the room where he's talking yeah. to Caspar. So I, this is, you know, this is a sweet sort of sad moment, of course. And Caspar, as we mentioned, is the one who's mostly deaf. And so yeah. in a, a little... I don't know, a moment that kind of got me in the heart a little bit. He doesn't hear him. He sort of says, huh? He doesn't really hear because yeah. Amal's one request for himself and for his family goes unheard. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> but then everyone decides to to call it a night and go to sleep. Yeah. And the three kings are resting. And we see that the mother, she's had her eyes on this box of gold which is carried by Melchior, who is the, the, the one we haven't really met that much. Mm -hmm. The one king that has not had a, a distinct personality. And you can see that what's been running through her head, you can imagine it. Her and her child are so poor, even one coin would probably change their lives. And so yeah. while the, the kings are sleeping, she attempts to take some of the gold that is meant for the Christ child. We get to hear a little bit of what her thoughts are prior to her acting on it. Mm -hmm. Do these rich people even know what just a tiny amount of this would do mm -hmm. for us poor folk? Do they even know? And as she goes to just maybe take just a little piece because they'll never miss it, it she just, she's saying to herself, it's for my child. It's for mm -hmm. my child. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. It is. Yeah. And, and especially right next to this moment where Amal has just asked if there's one stone that can help him. You see there, we're poised narratively at this place where are, are these three kings, are they good guys? Are they going to ignore the plight of these poor people that they're taking advantage of their hospitality? We don't know what's going to happen. There is so much wealth just sitting there. And so I think they do set it up that the mother's actions are, are very understandable. Yeah. Let's hear a little bit of the mother's thoughts as she's inching toward the gold. Do they know who 
Well, Kathleen, does she does she take the gold? She tries. Yeah, um, she does. She she sort of has her hand in the jar in the box, but the which we haven't really talked about at all. I guess the the kings didn't really just travel unattended. They have pages. They have guards in a way. I guess with them, and one of them wakes up and sees that she's doing this and cries out that she is a thief. Yes, um, yes. Don't let her go. She's stolen the gold. You know, it depends on the staging. I've seen it with with multiple attendants, and I've mm-hmm. also seen it just with this one solitary page, which honestly seems kind of dangerous traveling through the <laughs> right. countryside. But no matter. But but the mother does have the gold clutched in her hand, and mm-hmm. and the page it, or the attendants are are grabbing her, accusing mm-hmm. her of this horrible crime. And of course, Amal wakes up during all this ruckus. The kings wake up during all this ruckus, and Amal loves his mother and -hmm. stands up for her. Yeah. And he kind of rushes into a situation and doesn't, I don't think he at first totally understands what's going on because he sees the page attacking the mother and, and immediately once again, tries to play man of the house and attack back and defend his mother. And then once he does understand what's going on, he tries to defend her and make the Kings, especially Melchior, who's the one with the gold, understand why she has done this. Yeah. And to your question of what kind of people are these kings, how does Melchior respond? Well, he responds with just such grace. He says, the holy child, Jesus, will not need wealth, so so you should you should keep it because you do. You need the gold to feed your child, which is so interesting because, well, why is he bringing it then? <laughs> you know, it's the question. But I think that that goes back to the theme of this whole story, which is people give what they have to give. So they give the most valuable thing that they have. And so each of the kings brings the thing that he has that makes him powerful and wealthy in this world. Mm -hmm. And the shepherds do the same. They bring their their dance, they bring their hospitality, their olives. And he's bringing this gold because it is what he has to give, but he sees along the way that it is better suited to give it to Amal and his mother. And so he lets them have it. Melchior, 
showing his grace, showing his understanding of what this child is that they're going to be visiting when he says he doesn't need this gold. And then he goes on to talk about his kingdom will be built on love alone. He won't even wear a crown. Mm-hmm. His might will not be built on your toil, but he will walk among us. He will bring us new life. And the keys to his city belong to the poor. This is quite a statement from this king in this home. And the mother has an interesting response. Yeah, she immediately, I think this is when it clicks for her, really. Yeah. And she she understands that these prophecies of a of a king to come and bring peace to the earth. She's she realizes that this is what this is. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of the Bible stories and the nativity stories, there's always this this feeling that the people that encounter the Christ they know that he has been foretold. There's been stories in what we know as the Old Testament, but also just, I think, just stories have been circulating that this is this is going to happen one day. And so when she finally sees that this is happening, she says, oh my gosh, you know, I've been waiting my whole life yeah. for this kind of person to come. And she says, please take back the gold. I would rather that he have it. And says, I don't have anything of my own that I can send. Once again, that idea of giving whatever you have that's valuable to yourself, once she realizes she wants to not only give back the gold, but just she says, I wish I had something that was valuable to me that I could give you. Yes. And Amal has has a response. And this is just, again, just it's so sentimental, but but it works, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to go into this whole opera knowing that it's sweet and sentimental. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're in the right frame of mind, that's fine. I mean, if you if you mm-hmm. want something else. This is not your opera. But it is sweet and sentimental because Amal says, but mother, thinking the most precious thing I have is my crutch. I made it myself. Let me give that to this child. And you can just see the mother wants to break down at the thought of her child who cannot walk without the crutch, giving his most precious possession to these kings to bring to this child. Mm -hmm. It reminds me a little bit of that Christmas carol or Christmas song, the, The Little Drummer Boy where it's that same message of, I don't have anything to give to you, the Christ child. All I have is my drum. And then I play my drum for you. And then he smiles. And it's the same idea of just like, it doesn't matter what you have. It's the act of giving the thing that is most important to you, to the Christ child. Um, And in this case, when Amal says, the only thing I have that's of value is this thing that I cannot walk without, but I'm willing to give. That Mm -hmm. is the ultimate sacrifice. It's so sweet. And the mother is terrified by this, but but you can't. And as Amal hands the crutch towards the kings, he's startled himself because suddenly this leg that has not worked for him in memory, he's standing on it and he takes mm-hmm. a step and he says, I walk, mother, I walk. And the kings respond to this strongly by noting the fact that he walks and it is a sign from the holy child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's clear that it's not the kings that have healed him and it's not Caspar's magic beads. Mm-mm. It is meant to be that this is Christ. This is the first miracle in a way. Yeah. And Christ healing the lame happens throughout the gospels. And in this sense, that is this first intimation that he really is the Christ. Walk, mother. He walks. He walks. 
the kings are amazed by this miracle and continue to be convinced of the purpose of their journey. The mother, of course, is a mother. She's like, darling, please be careful. Don't, don't hurt yourself. That's great, but be careful. And the kings say, good woman, do not be afraid. Doesn't that sound like so many things we hear when miraculous mm-hmm. things happen in biblical stories? Do not be afraid. He is loved by the Son of God, the kings tell her, and they all want to touch him because he is blessed. He is blessed by God. And even the page wants to touch him. Yeah, and he is blessed to the degree that he asks his mother, can I go visit the Christ child and give him my crutch in person? (laughs) You know, I no longer need it. He's healed me. Can I go with the kings? And his mother allows him to do that. Yeah, it's very sweet. And I have to say, I, I had such a good time looking at the different versions of this that you can find. Honestly, I found lots of different versions of this on mm-hmm. YouTube. But comments are not always something I like to read because mm-hmm. people can get kind of grumpy in the comments. The comments to most of these postings of this show are so tender and sweet and full of reminiscences and importance to the family. But there was one that I read because what, what the mother says, like, are you sure you want to go? Are you sure, sure, sure? And Amal says, is it okay for me to go? Are you sure, sure, sure? I, this one <laughs> comment where I said, like, that's what we do in my family all the time, which mm-hmm. I just thought was such a sweet acknowledgement of the tender power, but everyday human response that people have. Are you sure, sure, sure? You know, I love you and respect you. Mm-hmm. Are you sure, sure, sure this thing is okay? So anyway, I, I mean, shout out to happy comments. That's, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good to hear that people have such positive associations with something like this. Because yeah. yeah, I mean, you're right to say it is a little bit, it's very sweet. It's very pure. <laughs> it is. And you do have to be in the right mindset to appreciate something like this. But I think around the Christmas season, there's a lot of things like this where, I mean, A Christmas Carol, too, you got to be in the right mindset to appreciate how sweet it is. But if you can get in that mindset, I think there's a lot here. There is a lot here. And it's it's just so sweet, this relationship between the mother and the son, because we're still ultimately worried about the mother. She's given back the gold they said she could keep. And Amal just wants to go and be part of this miracle. And he wants to be part of the group. I mean, he he is like the other shepherds who will show up at this mm-hmm. scene of the birth or the immediate aftermath of the birth. And the kings say to the mother, we'll take good care of him. We'll make sure he gets back to you when we're done with our visit. And she ends up helping him put his crutch on his back so he can walk without his crutch, but he's got his crutch to give as an offering. And it's so, I mean, again, so human. Don't forget to wash behind your ears. Don't tell lies. This parting between the mother and the son is so tender. And then they they all go. And the shepherds will conclude the opera by singing as the kings and the retinue and Amal continue on their journey.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by guest co-host Kathleen Vandewill. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you go, you can find a rich trove of past episodes. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. the second half of Opera for Everyone, where we are discussing Giancarlo Menotti and his much-beloved opera, Amal and the Night Visitors. Before we continue on with the second half, where we have many interesting things to discuss, I would like to say thank you to everyone involved in making the CD that we were listening to in the first half. This CD was made in 1986, recorded at the Sadler's Wells Theatre in London with the chorus and orchestra of the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, performing. In the role of the mother, we have Lorna Haywood, Casper, sung by John Dobson, Donald Maxwell was King Melchior, Curtis Watson, Balthazar, Christopher Panter, The Page, and of course, Amal, he was sung by James Rainbird. Thank you one and all for the beautiful music that we were listening to in the first half. We will have some more music in the second half, but it will be from different locations, and we'll just announce those as we go. Well, second half, I warned you in the beginning of the first half that this was going to be a little bit different than your average Opera for Everyone show, so I'd like to welcome... Oh, hey, what are you guys doing in here? I'd like to welcome the two people who are joining me. (laughs) Kathleen from the first half, Kathleen Vanderwill, welcome back. Hello, so glad to be here. I've been here the whole time. Yes, (laughs) and that other voice we just heard from, that's Grant. Well, Grant, we're going to we're going to put you to work talking about things related in some degree to the Amal and the Night Visitors that we were listening to in the first half. But mustn't disappoint anyone by omitting the opera helmet quiz. And because we don't have half of an opera to recap, (laughs) we have a whole opera to recap. I'm just going to ask Kathleen to remind us in broad strokes about Amal and the Night Visitors and what went on in that wonderful one act opera. Happy to. Amal and the Night Visitors. We started the opera by meeting Amal, our main character, who is a young boy, probably 10 or 11 years old, who walks with a limp. He is very poor and he lives in Bethlehem around the time of Christ with his widowed mother. They are at a a time of crisis in their lives. They have lost their livelihood because they've had to sell their sheep. He was a, a young shepherd boy. And the widowed mother doesn't know how they're gonna survive, thinks they might have to become beggars. But Amal is a a sunny personality. Mm -hmm. He is always positive. He is always telling her stories and she's becoming always a little frustrated with him for for how sunny he can be in all of his stories and, and tales. So when he says he sees a star in the night over their house that is like a comet, She doesn't believe him. Mm. And then when he says there's a king at their door knocking, she doesn't believe him. But Mm -mm. she finally goes and looks for herself. And there are three kings, the three kings from the nativity story. 
who are on their way to, to see the Christ child born. And they have stopped at Amal and his mother's house for the night and asked for hospitality. Amal and his mother let them in. Amal peppers them with questions. We, <laughs> when his mother is away getting some yes, firewood. <laughs> and, and likes to look through their gifts and eat the candy that they've brought with them and uh, learn about their lives as these three kings, which I'm sure we'll talk about them a little bit more and who they might have been. And Amal's mother gathers the whole village together, all the shepherds, all of their neighbors to treat them to a, a festival almost, yeah. dancing and food and everything that these poor people can possibly provide for the stranger, the guest. So in the middle of the night, while everyone is asleep, the widowed mother, she realizes that even if she took one coin from the gold that they are bringing to the Christ child, she could feed her family. She could save them from starvation. Mm -hmm. And so she tries to steal some of the gold from Melchior, one of the kings. She gets caught. Her son passionately defends her and mm -hmm. explains her actions. And she is forgiven. The kings say that she can keep the gold. But once she realizes that it's really going to this king who's been promised, this Christ child who will save us all, she says, no, I want him to have it. And then... Her son says, well, what can I give to the Christ child? All I have is this, this crutch that I walk with. And he offers to give that to the Christ child. And when he does that, his leg is miraculously healed. And it is the first miracle from the Christ child. And the opera ends with Amal going off with the three kings, the night visitors, to see the Christ child and everyone singing and dancing like mad. Thank you. Now, we know one thing really inspired Minotti to write this opera was a very specific painting. He was strolling around the Metropolitan Museum and he saw a Hieronymus Bosch painting, which uh, doesn't usually inspire me when I see Bosch paintings. They're, they're a little <laughs> bit wild, yeah, that's sometimes true. extremely creepy. Uh -huh. But this one, The Adoration of the Kings, inspired him to write this story and the rest is history. Yes. And this is a very popular theme for artists to depict this adoration of the Magi. It's when they reach the babe, the Christ child, and they are gathered around him with their gifts and usually looking very kingly. Yes. One of the things that's really interesting about this Bosch painting is that one of the kings is depicted as a black man. This is, is not the only time we see this depicted in part paintings of this particular subject tend to emphasize that the kings are multinational, that they come from all over the place. That's part of the attempt to show how universal the appeal of this particular event was. And we'll talk more about you know, what we think, where they could have come from and what their historical antecedents might be. But one thing I wanted to note is that this role of the, the one king who is, is usually Balthazar, who is depicted as, as Black, was often played in blackface, but this particular opera was the first time that that role was played by an actual black man on television in one of the early productions. So one of the sort of small, interesting little landmarks associated with this particular opera. Yeah. It's really interesting the way that these three are depicted. They're depicted allegorically, symbolically, the way that all characters from history and all figures from the Bible are when they're depicted in artwork. Mm. They can't be depicted representationally, at least in most of ancient medieval times, because it's hard to imagine what they would have looked like. 
Mm. Photography wasn't a thing. The average Roman citizen didn't know the face of the Roman emperor. No. His face is on the coins. Right. <laughs> it is a very interesting thing when you get specifics that start to stick. And oftentimes it's just somebody influential does the thing. But sometimes it sticks because there's an explanation that makes sense with it. Yeah. And the explanation here is that the evolved version of the tradition depicts one of the three as being from Europe, one as being from Africa, and one as being from Asia. Right. And to use the Noah's Ark understanding of the world, one of them was descended from Noah's son Ham, one of them was descended from Noah's son Japheth, and one of them was descended from Noah's son Shem. Yeah. In addition, they're traditionally depicted at different ages. Hmm. One of them is old, one of them is in middle adulthood, and one of them is young. Hmm. And the point of the diversity of age and ethnicity and origin is to show that these three represent all the world. Yes. And this is done to a certain extent from the very beginning. In the Christmas story, as it comes to us through the Gospels, according to Matthew and Luke, there are two sets of visitors who pay homage to the infant Christ. One of these sets is the poor Jewish shepherds from nearby, and the other set is the wealthy, mysterious, but certainly Gentile magi from far away. They represent all the world. In the view of the early Christian authors, there were different ways of expressing this, most frequently to, say, Jews and Gentiles yeah. as mm -hmm. the two dominant divisions in the early church. But often male and female were used, rich and poor, slave and free even. And so with these magi being from all the different places, we're kind of just covering our bases, right? It's the... <laughs> the Power Rangers theory of tokenism. <laughs> and the idea is that they are truly universal, that in some strange sense, all the world comes to see the Christ child. Yeah. Well, speaking of these three kings, and you know we love music here, how about if we, I'm sure some of you have been humming it in your heads just <laughs> as we talk about these these three people, how about if we play a clip of one of the more famous Christmas songs, Christmas hymns even, written in 1857, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And this particular rendition that we're going to play was recorded in 1967 by Ella Fitzgerald. Just one little bit of background on this particular hymn. This was an American written hymn. John Henry Hopkins Jr., who was the rector of an Episcopal church in Pennsylvania, wrote both the lyrics and the music for this hymn. We know it as We Three Kings of Orient are. We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we traverse afar
That was Ella Fitzgerald with a very popular Christmas tune, We Three Kings of Orient Are. One of my favorites. We don't hear the word Orient that much these days, Grant. Honestly, that's probably that? for the best. <laughs> Edward yeah. Said kind of killed it. Yep. So the word Orient is, of course, a word that I would, unless you're using it as a verb, caution anybody against using most of the time, mm-hmm. but it just means East. And so sometimes we talk about different parts of the world in terms of their orientation, <laughs> in terms of their orientation from Europe and the presumed viewpoint there. And we still preserve this in terms like the Near East and the Middle East and the Far East. Mm. Indeed, in terms like Asia, a term that is effectively useless referring to the chunk of land where most of humanity lives, distinguished mostly only from being the area to the east of Europe, we are talking about people from the other side of the Fertile Crescent. Mm. The Fertile Crescent is the place where some of the oldest cities in the world are. Mm -hmm. It is the place where many of the earliest human accomplishments were pioneered. It is the place where many of the earliest cities and kings and records of history and writing and all the rest of it that we have to this day. I heard you mention kings. Oh, yes, kings. By the by, these three kings of Orient, now that we've picked apart the word Orient for a bit, they are neither (laughs) three nor kings. Oh, well, why not? The Bible, it turns out, doesn't say all sorts of things we think it does in our popular culture. The Christmas story being full of this kind of thing. In fact, any part of the Bible that gets told and retold and retold tends to accumulate cultural retellings. Right, because different artistic interpretations of it add layers to the understanding of the story, which become tradition and traditional understanding. Yeah, I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Jesus? You (laughs) you can recognize it. We have no way of knowing what he looked like. All we know is he was a human being who lived in a certain area and time. He could have looked like anything, and yet we all have this very vivid mental image with particular features that are identifiable at a distance. Art is powerful stuff. Art is copying art is copying art is copying art. Even to the degree that there have been artists whose work was punished for not being exactly like the art before it. Caravaggio sort of famously tried to depict biblical stories in more realistic ways. He painted the scene of the Virgin Mary after her death, and he made her look as if she had actually died, like she was a corpse. Uh-huh. And the, the church rejected it and, and wouldn't pay him for it until he did another version, because every other version had depicted her body as seeming to be still alive, miraculously ascending. One tiny instance, but something I think a lot of artists faced. Yeah. So Grant, about these not three, not kings, explain that. So not three, because nowhere does the Bible give a number. It uses the plural in Greek. And so we know that there are more than one, at least according to the account. But they are referred to as magi, or in Greek, magoi. The term magi very much does not mean kings. Exactly what it does mean is a little harder to describe. And that's magi, M-A-G-I. We render it in English. Is that the same root as magic or magician? Yes. The term magi originally and properly referred to a particular tribe found in what we would nowadays call Iran or Persia. 
And eventually the term came to be used, holy men, uh, especially in the Zoroastrian faith that became prevalent throughout that area. In turn, because of the reputation that these priests had for knowledge and wisdom and practices that seemed beyond the natural, they mm. gained a reputation as what we might call magicians or magi in the role-playing sense. The word magi appears elsewhere in the New Testament in this sense to refer to people who are attempting to earn a living by doing kind of magic and hucksterism. Oh, Zoroastrians. I think the thing I know about them is they leave their dead to be picked by carrion. Honestly, if you know nothing else, that's that's a, a good one. It, it sticks in the mind. Visual. Zoroastrianism is a kind of unique religion in history. It is a religion that caught on, became very big for an extended period of time, and then thanks to a set of geopolitical circumstances, eventually withered down to a very small remnant. In their heyday, the Zoroastrians controlled large portions of the East through their association with various empires centered in the Iran-Persia area. The thing I always say about Zoroastrianism is if there's something in Christianity that is very well known and popular and has no basis whatsoever in the Bible, it probably comes from Zoroastrianism. Oh, A lot of our ideas about <laughs> angels and heavens and even our depictions of certain sort of supernatural things are just straight up borrowed from Zoroastrian iconography and ideology. The Zoroastrians were very big into what we would call dualism, the contrast between light and dark, between heavenly and chthonic, between living and dead. Grant, isn't the Zoroastrian influence something we see in Mozart's magic flute? Absolutely. Yes, by way of Freemasonry, another thing that takes symbols and runs with them. <laughs> Zoroastrianism engaged in this incredible intellectual effort to categorize the world in a dualist sense of the forces of good and the forces of evil. And so there is this sense that you want to feed the birds of the air and not the worms of the ground, and that's why their dead are left to be picked by vultures. Oh, bringing it back around to Kathleen's comment. <laughs> wow. The sun is a source of life. The yeah. moon is this kind of odd shadow of it. A lot of ideas about the devil and depictions of the demons come very directly from Zoroastrianism. Fascinating. And so we think potentially these magi who show up in this telling of the Christmas story in the Gospels those were Zoroastrians. That seems to be the implication of the story. It doesn't seem like these were Hellenistic world hucksters like we find later on in the Gospels. It seems that they were, in fact, authentic wise men, another term that's used sometimes to translate this. Mm -hmm. But a safe translation that I've seen in some places is astrologers. The one thing we know about these men is that they are interpreters of the stars. Mm. And it is, by the way, the one thing we know about them. We know nothing about these guys. There is so very little detail here. And I believe that's intentional. They're intentionally left 
kind of vague and mysterious just floating into the story here. And what about those gifts that they bring? Is that in the text, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Yes, and that's where we come up with the whole thing about there being three of them. There are three gifts, therefore there were three of them, is the kind of basic inference there. It also makes it easier for the whole old, young, middle thing. And why those three gifts, Grant? Gold seems pretty obvious, but the other two are are spices, perfumes? Yeah, um, any attempt to really pin down what they mean is totally fraught and probably inaccurate. Oh. But let's go ahead and do it anyway. Sure. <laughs> At least according to traditional interpretation, the gold represents kingship, power, and wealth. The frankincense refers to the role of a priest, and the myrrh refers to death. And all of these are prefigurings of the role of Christ as king, priest, and ultimately... Sacrifice. Sacrifice, yes. Is it, don't the women come bearing myrrh to anoint his body after his yes. death? Yeah. And in the Old Testament, frankincense is enjoined for ritual use. Well, gold, frankincense, and myrrh show up in, well, a number of songs, but let's hear a little bit of this song that we know as What Child Is This? And What Child Is This? was first written in 1865 and first published in 1871. But of course, it comes from a much older tune, Greensleeves, which a lot of people have said over the years is attributed to Henry VIII, but but uh, most scholars today agree that Henry VIII did a lot of things, but spending his time composing love songs, no, probably not. N- probably not. <laughs> probably not. William Chatterton Dix wrote the lyrics to this traditional English folk song. Our version that we're listening to today was recorded in 1965 by that well-loved opera singer, Joan Sutherland. was What Child Is This sung by Joan Sutherland. And note that phrase, 
King of Kings. That's a phrase that you do see quite a bit in Mesopotamian and Persian discussions of the great king, whoever that happens to be at the time, one of the most important of whom in the Bible is the king Cyrus, who was probably what we would call a Zoroastrian or a Mazdan. Huh. And he was responsible for, among other things, returning the exiled Jews to their homeland. Yeah. And so he is remembered quite fondly, although ambiguously, in the biblical canon, in a way that I think echoes this sort of fond but ambiguous reference to these wise and magical figures that we meet in this story. Grant, I appreciate you talking to us a little bit about how the Magi are depicted in Scripture, but I know that there are depictions of the Magi, as we talked before about depictions of them in visual art. There are also other places that the Magi are discussed. Much of what we know about the Magi is described in the histories of Herodotus. Herodotus, the the father of history as we know him, the Greek? Yeah, I mean, he also kind of made stuff up a lot. So you got to take <laughs> anything he says, particularly about the Persians, to be honest, with a yeah. grain of salt. But what does he have to say about the Magi? He refers to them as a tribe and as religious and or courtly functionaries where they are engaged in the kind of advice and and divination that was a required part of the ancient court life. Yeah. One depiction that is maybe a slight stretch, but I, I'm going to make it anyway, of our, our three kings is in A Christmas Carol. So in A Christmas Carol, you have oh. the three ghosts and you have past, present, and future represented. And they are also represented, as Grant said, as different ages, different classes, yeah. There's a lot of sort of resonances, I would say. Dickens was a, a a famous magpie. He saw anything shiny in the mud and he lifted it up and made it his own. And I think, you know, you can see a lot of references in A Christmas Carol to some of the traditional touchstones of the nativity story. And A Christmas Carol, if I can use this to transition oh so gracefully to something I wanted to discuss, A Christmas Carol really is the place where we start to see Christmas entering popular culture in a way that it, it kind of hadn't before. Yes. We talked about how Amalan and the Night Visitors, the opera that we just talked about, is the first American Christmas special, basically. It's the first, first opera broadcast on television in America. There were two previous operas for the BBC. But it was commissioned specifically yes. by NBC to be a television opera. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it reflects a time, so we're, we're in the early 50s here, the, the big moment that television will, will have its kind of coming out party is going to be 1953 with the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Mm. That's when everybody said, oh, well, we have to go out and buy a, a television and put it in our living room because we have to see this live. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, later there's Kennedy's inauguration. But the Christmas special is also a place where we see people starting to really gather together as a country and experience the same visuals together. And what really started that was a Christmas carol. People celebrated Christmas in their own homes, in their churches for quite literally thousands of years. But the Victorians were the ones that really, really took it and made it a commercialized thing. 
and the same sort of symbols and rituals, many of which we observe today, the importance of holly, the giving of presents on Christmas morning, and especially Christmas cards, all of that got heavily pushed around A Christmas Carol, which made a ton of money. And many of the first specials, and even today, many of the specials that we go back to, such as A Muppet Christmas Carol, come from that story. Oh, yeah. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Uh, mm -hmm. You think of all of them. Uh Frosty the Snowman, all of those things that they look quite dated now, but those were <laughs> must-see TV. Yeah. And so was Amal and the Night Visitors. I remember getting the TV guide and like circling when the Grinch was going to be on, when the Charlie Brown Christmas was going to be on. These Christmas specials were really part of, I don't know, getting you in the holiday spirit, yeah. marking the beginning of the season. It was exciting. And then all your friends would have watched it the night before as well, mm -hmm. and you would talk about it with them. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and it is a big part of sort of selling Christmas to you, I think, in a way, yeah. like, you know, both in a commercial sense, but also in a spirit sense, which are obviously very entwined. And a lot of the names that we sort of know today as famous television personalities started with Christmas specials like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. And a lot of the carols we sing today were specifically composed for that. White Christmas famously has been one of the, the highest charting and grossing songs of all time comes from this time period. And speaking of Dickens, that's when we started associating snow with Christmas Yep, in mm -hmm. that big way. Like I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. You just mm -hmm. referenced that. But the snowy Christmas of the Dickens telling that it just gets built on and built on in the whole Santa Claus phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Wait, there's no snow in the Bible story? <laughs> No, but I did see a version of Amal and the Night Visitors where at the very end when Amal walks off with the kings and his mother's waving goodbye, snow starts falling. <laughs> I was very confused. Because he's, he's passed into tradition. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's, that's, that's right. what happened. It's like the actual story, of course, is in the Middle East, which in case you don't know, is hot and dry. But yeah, at the end, he passes into legend and tradition. And so we get snow because, you know, Europe. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think Dickens, is, as well as many other forces at that time, really conspired to make Christmas be a European thing. Christmas looks like Christmas in Germany. Christmas looks like Christmas in Victorian England. Christmas trees, after all. Exactly. <laughs> and a lot of that comes out of this big commercialization effort around A Christmas Carol, which was one of the, the highest selling books of its time. And, and Dickens dined out and bought many mansions on the back of it. <laughs> And he loved performing it. He loved doing he readings did. of it. Yes. He loved the sound of his own voice. <laughs> yeah, he liked doing readings of any of his work. That's yes. true. But to bring us back to Amal, I think we see that in the early 50s, there is uh, U.S. culture is very ripe for this. We've gotten through the horrors of war. There's a lot of emphasis on the family, on the home. Mm on new technology that's come out of the war effort, and also on nationalism. So this is a thing where we gather around the television, all of us and our kids, and we watch this thing that teaches us something about how we should be and what our morals and ethics should be and what's important. And I think all of that is in the Amal story for sure. It, it was a way of really reinforcing Christian ethics to a nation that was rebuilding what that meant to it. That's beautifully said, Kathleen. I think it's time for another song. <laughs> and Grant, this is a song that you recommended to me. I'll let you do the Spanish, but it's typically translated as From a Distant Home. De Tierra Lejana. 
The words for this were written by Manuel Fernandez Juncos. He was a journalist, a poet, author, and founder of the Puerto Rican Red Cross. He Hmm. was born in Spain, but spent most of his life in Puerto Rico. In fact, wrote the lyrics to the revised version of the Puerto Rican anthem. Quite I want a to prolific. see a biopic about this guy. He sounds yeah. fascinating. <laughs> like he, he wrote the national anthem in between founding the local Red Cross. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> We're going to play this song sung in Spanish by a group that I just discovered. It's a German vocal group. They do a lot of things in many different languages called the Kalmus Ensemble. And this was recorded in 2015. But just to give you a little flavor of what they are saying, it is through the voices of the kings that they are singing, that they come from a distant home seeking the Savior, using the star as our guide, the brightly beaming star as our guide. And the refrain is, lovely eastern star that tells us of God's morning, heaven's wondrous light, never cease shining, glory in the highest to the Son of God, upon the earth be peace and love to all. And then... The subsequent verses will talk about those three gifts, the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. Those were the Kalmas Singers, a German vocal group. 
beautiful a cappella rendition of that song, which once you hear it, I feel like it sticks in your head. I've been humming it for a week. <laughs> for those of you keeping track at home, this is a story about people from Persia who have found their self in the Roman Empire, specifically <laughs> the part inhabited by Jews. And it is being performed as a song written by a Puerto Rican and as sung by a bunch of Germans and as presented to you on an American podcast. <laughs> Spectacular, except I can add one more. The author became Puerto Rican, but he was born and grew up in Spain and then moved to Puerto Rico. So just the more the merrier. It's a small world. Indeed. Well, I think it's time to give a little bit more background than we've given so far on our composer focus of this particular show, Giancarlo Menotti, someone who was born in Italy, lived there until he was the age of 17. He grew up in a prosperous family. His father was involved in um, a South American concern, coffee business. They had eight children, and his mother was quite the musician. Many different instruments she played and taught her children. But Giancarlo was truly a prodigy. At a very young age, he was enrolled in a conservatory in Milan. But by his own telling, he didn't do terribly well. And, and by the way, at age 11, he had written an opera. It was an opera performed at home, but he had written a full opera to be performed as a puppet show. But his father had passed away. And at this point, the mother was trying to figure out what to do to do best by her entire family. And she took him to, well, South America first, but then he landed in Philadelphia at the Curtis Institute of Music. How did he end up there? Well, a family friend happened to be Arturo Toscanini, which might be a familiar name to a lot of Americans. Arturo Toscanini, also an Italian who ended up making a lot of his career in America, best known to American audiences, I would say, as the leader of the NBC Orchestra for a couple of decades. He was on people's television every week, very influential man. But prior to that, he had known the Minotti family in Italy, and he suggested to Mrs. Minotti, yes, your son, he should go to America to get his training. He's not done so well here in Milan, but that's okay. He's very bright, and he just needs to not have distractions. He needs to not know anyone. So he ends up at the Curtis Institute. Well, he makes one of the most important connections of his entire life. Besides having a great education at the Curtis Institute, he ends up meeting Samuel Barber there. They're close to the same age, they're students at the same time, and Samuel Barber becomes personal and professional, his partner, his partner in life for a great many years. We'll come back to talk more about Samuel Barber in a minute, but when Minotti finishes his schooling at the Curtis Institute, he has written another opera. It gets performed by the Curtis Institute students at the Philadelphia Academy of Music. It so impressed people that the Met Opera picked it up. This is Amelia Goes to the Ball. And it's interesting because he reflects on that opera and says, yeah, they weren't too happy with me when I wanted to tell them how to stage it and how I wanted my opera done. Because he was doing both words and music, libretto as well as the composing. And he's like, I don't like anyone else staging my operas. I have a vision and I want to see my opera presented the way it was. And so going forward, most of his operas, he was the stage director himself. In fact, he had... And all the actors were played by his stuffed animals <laughs> for the puppet show. <laughs> well, he, he, he had a vision and he wanted the vision 
to manifest itself on the stage. He's getting quite a lot of notoriety and quite a lot of attention. In the 30s, he has a, a radio opera commissioned, The Old Maid and the Thief. It's a little bit buffa too. And that leads to an opera being staged at the Met, a new opera called The Island God. That one didn't do well. But the next opera he writes, The Medium, which is written in 46, 1946 and presented in 1947, that one goes to Broadway, not the Metropolitan Opera, and it plays for 211 performances, 211 performances on Broadway with another short opera, The Telephone, as an opener. Minotti did quite well on Broadway. He has two other operas that do extraordinarily well on Broadway. Probably his most famous enduring opera is The Consul. It's his first full-length opera. It premieres on Broadway, and it wins. He wins the Pulitzer Prize for music for this opera on Broadway, The Consul, which is fascinating because not only is it early in the Pulitzer Prize for music's existence, but it's also the first opera to win the Pulitzer Prize. But wait, there's more. <laughs> he also premieres The Saint of Bleecker Street in five years later, in 1955, on Broadway, and it wins the Pulitzer Prize for music. By the way, both of these operas also win Critics Awards in New York as well. And it's in the midst of all that, 1951, that NBC commissions his television opera, A Mall in the Night Visitors. And then I'll note he also founds this amazing festival, which is ongoing. He doesn't stay with it for his entire life, but he founds this Spoleto Festival of Two Worlds in Spoleto, Italy, a small town which then really gets a lot of notoriety because of this amazing festival. And the two worlds, of course, are, are Europe and America. And he would bring American performers over to Europe at a time when that wasn't super common. That was in 1958. And in 1977, he also starts this Spoleto Festival USA in Charleston, South Carolina. Now, he ends up leaving, not necessarily on great terms, both of those festivals, but the festivals continue. In fact, I was just recently looking up the Spoleto Festival USA in Charleston, and there's a lot of intriguing stuff going on there. A lot of things get premiered and then go other places, and just a lot of interesting performers who show up there. One other thing to return to is his relationship with Samuel Barber. I said they were partners for a long time, and it's true, but, but not just in the personal life. Also professionally, Samuel Barber also won a Pulitzer Prize for music for an opera, and that was 1958 for his opera Vanessa, a work which you can reasonably readily find to watch. Minotti wrote the libretto for Vanessa. It's interesting. When you're a composer, you think of that as being the foremost activity. And certainly, Minotti was prolific and extremely successful, generally called one of the most important composers of the mid-20th century when you read about him in various places. But also that he had this facility with the English language to write these English language librettos and also with stage direction. I found when I looked him up on the, the Met Opera's offerings online, his name shows up among other things, not just for being the librettist for Vanessa, it also shows up because he's directed some operas, which is fascinating to me. Fascinating. So he, he liked stage direction, and he was very, very good with it. So let's return to Samuel Barber. Are either of you familiar with him? Yes. I am not very, although I was, I was looking at the 
synopsis for Vanessa. And that sounds like a fascinating gothic opera. Oh, yeah. Oh, Kathleen, it's so your kind of opera. It? Like I was reading, I was like, <laughs> we need to do this. <laughs> I I think we could probably uh, probably manage to do that. But great, you answered yes to Samuel Barber. I think there's a reasonable case to be made that Samuel Barber's Agnes Day is the most beautiful piece of music ever written. That's quite a comment. It's got that sort of beautiful mathematical precision that I associate with fugues or certain kind of Baroque music. It's just a it's just a gorgeous piece of music, and the way that it builds and builds and builds upon itself is, I think, truly remarkable. So let's listen to the, a clip of the Agnus Day, which I found on a CD by the Atlanta Symphony and Chorus. And I think we'll get a flavor of what Grant's talking about and the beauty of this music. And we'll come back and talk a little bit more about Samuel Barber and this work.
That was from The Unused Day by Samuel Barber. And that was a piece that he adapted from a pre-existing piece. He adapted it in 1967 using the Latin text for the Mass, the Lamb of God, Agnus Dei. But it's from a piece that's often performed simply known as Adagio for Strings. But the Adagio for Strings is just a portion of a, a string quartet that he had written. It's, I think, the second movement of that when he was 28 years old in 1938. So this piece is probably the piece that is best known from Samuel Barber, and it has a real place in American history. And not just American history, international history. Usually as a song of profound collective mourning and grief. Yeah. It was played, for instance, at FDR's death, at Einstein's death, at Kennedy's death, at Grace Kelly's death. It's like this fugue-like thing that then builds to dramatic end. And why do people play this at moments of grief? Because they want to believe that there's some end to it, some point to it, some like climax after which there's a denouement. It's interesting because this string quartet, when Samuel Barber first wrote it, was performed by an orchestra that Toscanini, there he is again now in America, that Toscanini was leading. But in spite of him being in America, he didn't often conduct music by American composers, but he conducted this piece and he simply told Barber it was, I don't speak Italian, semplice e bella, simple and beautiful. And so it is. Well, there's a lot more to be said with Samuel Barber and hopefully we'll get back to him in another opera for everyone. But Minotti is not as well known as we might like for him to be, but we are so grateful to him for this amazing Christmas tradition of a mall in the night visitors. And maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't seen it. It's readily available, many different productions on YouTube. And often because it does not have the most difficult music and vocal lines in it, it can be performed by sometimes high school, but often by college and university groups. That can be a great way to get to see this. So I recommend it highly to everyone, a mall in the night visitors. Giancarlo Minotti. And I think we have time for a couple more of our Three Kings-inspired Christmas songs. And one poem. And one poem. Yeah, one of my favorites, I know I mentioned it earlier, is The Little Drummer Boy. That is, I think, probably the, the Christmas carol that most reminds me of the Amal and the Night Visitors story, which is just this, this beautiful little story of how you have to offer what you have and whether that's something that's valuable in a worldly sense or just valuable in the sense of it's something that you care about and have to give, whether it's a crutch or your ability to play on a drum, that is what you must offer. And so this this song was written by American composer Catherine Kennicott Davis in 1941. So it's more recent than some of our other music. And the excerpt we're going to be hearing was performed in 2017 by the King's Singers, and they are an a cappella group, which fascinatingly, it's six men, two countertenors, two baritones, one tenor, and one bass. And a, a very interesting rendition of Little Drummer Boy. Bum, bum, bum. 
was Little Drummer Boy, and Grant, you have another song in mind. Yeah, the old classic, Do You Hear What I Hear? But it's not as old a classic as these others. It was written in 1962 in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, it is a really interesting meditation on power and the inversion of power and the way that small actions echo with worldwide consequences. Hmm doesn't pass judgment on its characters in the way that some of these stories do. Amal and the Night Visitors or the Little Drummer Boy, it is important that judgment is rendered, that Amal is healed, that the Little Drummer Boy gets a smile out of the infant Christ. Mm. But in this song, there is simply the reaction of one to another up the ascending chain of power. And there's something, I think, very beautiful about the realness of that. Yeah. Pray for peace, people everywhere. Amen. Said the night wind to the little lamb, do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb, do you see what I see? A star, a star, dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite, with a tail as big as a kite. Said the little lamb to the shepherd boy, do you hear what I hear? That was... Do You Hear What I Hear, written in 1962, performed in 1969 by Johnny Mathis. And speaking of other interpretations, understandings of these magi, Grant, you mentioned to me one of the writers that I hear you quote quite often had something to say about the magi. Yeah, you know how you go in the quote books and there's always like the same six people who wrote all the quotes? Including the ones who didn't, but just get them all ascribed to them. Oscar Wilde, Mark Twain, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, exactly. You guys got it. There's this one author who I think is one of the most interesting authors who ever lived. He is the most influential author you've never heard of. And he had a way of writing all of his prose as poetry and all of it as 
these kind of emotional meditations, many of which disagreed with one another, and all of which were attempts to explore the strangeness and the wonder of our world. And if you all are up for it, I would love to read to you a passage from G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Yes, please. We're interested. It is still a strange story, though an old one, how they came out of Orient lands, crowned with the majesty of kings and clothed with something of the mystery of magicians. That truth that is tradition has wisely remembered them as almost unknown quantities, as mysterious as their mysterious and melodious names, Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. But there came with them all that world of wisdom that had watched the stars in Chaldea and the sun in Persia, and we shall not be wrong if we see in them the same curiosity that moves all the sages. They would stand for the same human ideal if their names had really been Confucius or Pythagoras or Plato. They were those who sought not tales, but the truth of things. And since their thirst for truth was itself a thirst for God, they also have had their reward. But even in order to understand that reward, we must understand that for philosophy, as much as mythology, the reward was the completion of the incomplete. Wow. Grant, thank you for that. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. G.K. Chesterton and his writings. And I would like to thank Kathleen Vanderwill for joining me for this entire episode of Opera for Everyone. And Grant, thank you so much for all your contributions. I really appreciate both of you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Pat. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable, because we believe opera is for everyone. Thank you.